Welcome to another episode of Primary Care Anywhere, our resident-led podcast hosted by the University of Utah Internal Medicine Residents. Today, our episode is focused on low back pain based on an article on the Annals of Internal Medicine in the Clinic series from August 2021 by Dr. Roger Chu. To start us off, we have Julia Gray, who's going to walk us through risk factors in a clinical vignette. After that, we'll have Tim Curtis walking us through history and physical exam findings for low back pain. Julie Williamson will be talking with us about imaging indications for low back pain. Andrew Yannick will go through non-pharmacologic therapies for the treatment of low back pain. Anya Kalsbeek will go through pharmacologic treatment and possible procedures for low back pain. And then to wrap us up, Dr. Karen Stenyam, one of our associate program directors and a primary care physician, will walk us through some primary care clinical pearls and wrap up our clinical vignette. Hope you enjoy. Low back pain is an extremely common diagnosis in the United States. The lifetime prevalence of low back pain is nearly 80%, and spinal disorders are the fourth most common primary diagnosis in U.S. office visits. This means we see a chief complaint of low back pain with similar frequency to bread and butter internal medicine topics such as hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and diabetes. In addition to being common, it turns out that low back pain is quite expensive. The direct and indirect healthcare costs due to back pain are over $12 billion per year in the United States, and some 83 million days of work are lost per year due to back pain. When talking about low back pain, we need to discuss chronicity. We classify low back pain as acute versus chronic because those diagnoses differ in their likelihood of pain improvement and recommended therapies. Acute low back pain is defined as lasting less than four weeks. Most acute back pain resolves or improves within four weeks with self-care. Chronic back pain is defined as lasting longer than 12 weeks. Once the low back pain has lasted this long, patients are at risk for long-term pain and functional disability. What risk factors are associated with low back pain? Physically demanding work, especially that involving bending and twisting. But on the flip side, physical inactivity is also a risk factor. Additionally, obesity, arthritis, pregnancy, age greater than 30 years, poor posture, stress, depression, and smoking all place a person at risk for low back pain or disability claims for low back pain. What can we say to a patient when they ask us how to prevent low back pain? Unfortunately, we do not have direct evidence to support any intervention that lowers the risk of developing low back pain. Lumbar support such as back braces or belts are again not proven to be effective at preventing low back pain. Lifestyle interventions, including maintaining a normal body weight, exercising, and using proper posture and lifting techniques, again, lack evidence in preventing low back pain. However, maintaining a normal body weight and exercising certainly improve other aspects of a patient's health, and it is something we will continue to counsel on during primary care visits. I'd like to present a case of one of my clinic patients who I'll be seeing this week for low back pain. This is a 75-year-old gentleman with a relevant medical history of hypertension, obesity, and type 2 diabetes who presented to the emergency room with new left low back pain, which developed after he changed a tire. The pain is worse with turning, bending, and walking. It radiates from his low back into the left buttocks and lateral thigh. He is having difficulty sleeping as he is uncomfortable. In terms of red flag symptoms for back pain, he denies trauma, fever, steroid use, history of cancer, new weight loss, saddle anesthesia, or bladder and bowel incontinence. Vital signs in the emergency room were normal. 
On exam, there was tenderness to palpation of the left lower paraspinal muscles. There was no midline tenderness or deformities. There was limited range of motion with back flexion, extension, and rotation. He had 5 out of 5 strength of his bilateral lower limbs. The straight leg test was positive on the left. No imaging was obtained. He was given a Medrol dose pack, methocarbamol, and Norco. He represented to the ED the following day, saying now the pain, which radiates down his left leg, has worsened to 10 out of 10, and the Medrol dose pack, methocarbamol, and Norco weren't helping. A CT lumbar spine without contrast was obtained, which showed severe spinal canal and foraminal narrowing at L3 to L4. It also showed an L1 end plate fracture of indeterminate age. He was discharged with a short course of Percocet. My clinic was alerted to the ED visit, and the patient was contacted to come into the office next week to see me. However, in the meantime, he had a third ED visit with the same symptoms, still not responsive to medications. On exam, he had new weakness of left hip flexion. MRI lumbar spine without contrast was obtained and showed the L1 M plate fracture, spinal canal stenosis, and a disc bulge at L2, L3 with contact of the left nerve root. He was discharged home to continue with the Percocet, Medrol dose pack, and methocarbamol until he sees me later this week. Please think about how you would diagnose and manage this patient in clinic, and we will return to this case later on in the podcast. As we know, low back pain is an exceedingly common complaint. Despite this, we're often taught during our medical training to approach low back pain by looking for very specific underlying etiologies, by identifying red flags in order to spot ominous causes like cauda equina syndrome, malignancy, or infection. However, these cases, while important not to miss, are very uncommon, representing fewer than 5% of all presentations for low back pain, likely even less in a primary care setting. It is certainly important to have these etiologies on our differential, but approaching every low back pain patient from this perspective often leads to the overwhelming majority of patients being bucketed or grouped into the unhelpful diagnosis of nonspecific low back pain. This all too often leads to ineffective, one-size-fits-all treatment routines. In the overwhelming majority of cases, the issue is nothing more than a minor mechanical malfunction, an inevitable consequence of normal wear and tear. In mechanical low back pain, the key is correctly identifying the presenting pattern of pain. This identification depends on a precise history and a concordant physical examination. A mechanical pattern will respond to appropriate mechanical therapy within weeks, often within days. The inability to distinguish a clear pattern on initial assessment or a failure to improve with specified therapy demands reevaluation. By filtering out patients accurately identified with mechanical low back pain and successfully managed with non-invasive treatment, you greatly increase the probability of discovering potentially menacing non-mechanical diagnoses among the remainder. Pain pattern recognition is a reliable and efficient triage technique that increases diagnostic accuracy, enables patient-specific management, and decreases needless investigations. The first step is the history. While it's important to be comprehensive, I like to focus my history around five essential questions in order to establish the pattern of the patient's symptoms. Question one seeks to localize the primary location of the patient's pain. Pain patterns are categorized either as back-dominant or exhibit back-related pain felt mainly in the legs. Back-dominant pain indicates pain most intense in the low back, buttocks, over the greater trochanters, or into the groin. Leg-dominant pain is felt along the gluteal fold and extends into the thigh, calf, ankle, or foot. Pain primarily in the back, buttocks, or around the pelvis is often referred pain, arising from a specific structure or structures within the spine. Leg-dominant pain, around or below the gluteal fold, is pain associated with direct irritation of a spinal nerve root. This pain is correctly termed radicular pain. 
The demarcation between referred and radicular pain occurs at the bottom of the buttock and not around the knee as we're often taught. Because patients will often complain of pain in both the back and the leg, the history must identify the single site of the chief complaint. When a straightforward question, like where do you hurt the most, fails to clarify the situation, patients should be asked which pain they want treated at this particular visit. If they say both, as they often do, you can delineate by making it clear that this visit can only focus on one site and ask them to choose the pain location they want fixed first. One imaginative suggestion for eliciting a pain location is I have a back pain pill and a leg pain pill. I can only give you one. Which would you prefer? Question two asks, is your pain constant or intermittent? Patients will often say constant, both to emphasize their concerns and because over time, individual attacks do blur together. This question about pain constancy is best asked in two parts. Number one, at your best time of day and in your best position, is there ever a moment when the pain stops, just for a moment, even though it comes right back? And two, when the pain stops, does it disappear completely? Is it totally gone? The duration of the pain-free interval is unimportant, but during that time, the symptoms must be entirely absent, not just less intense. This issue is so important that it is wise to repeat to the patient exactly what was said to avoid mistakes. Truly intermittent back-dominant pain never results from spinal malignancy or active infection. The power of these questions, properly asked and answered, is enormous. At first contact, without any additional investigations, clinicians can essentially eliminate the possibility of these two devastating pathologies. Question three is deliberately direct. Does bending forward increase your typical pain? This single question is a distillation and deliberate simplification of the usual inquiries about the aggravating factors. All exacerbating activities can be identified, but for pattern recognition, the presence or absence of the typical pain on flexion separates the two back-dominant and the two leg-dominant syndromes from each other. Question four is a mandatory question for all four patterns because it addresses the only surgical emergency in mechanical low back pain, cauda equina syndrome. In order to retain focus on the current back problem, the question should be asked, since the start of your pain, has there been any change in your bowel or bladder function? Asking the question in this way avoids unnecessary concerns over long-standing and unrelated gastrointestinal or genitourinary concerns. Any change, however, even the common complaint of constipation must be further explored. These disturbances must not be missed. Question 5 establishes the level of disability and suggests the intensity of the treatment required. What can't you do now that you could do before your pain started and why? Asking why the patient is unable to perform normally is an excellent check on the validity of question one. Someone who identifies back pain as the worst problem but gives leg pain as the reason for the present disability needs to be questioned again. Remaining questions, such as what are the relieving movements or positions, have you had this type of pain before, and have you had treatment in the past, and was it effective, round out the mechanical history. Back pain is a recurrent affliction. In establishing the patient's history, particularly the details of the previous episodes, and the patient's response to prior therapy can be of great value. Identifying the pattern of pain is accomplished with the history, but the physical exam must support the narrative. The physical examination is not an independent activity, but should be designed to specifically support or refute the findings in the patient's history. To minimize patient discomfort and maximize efficiency, the examination usually progresses from tests best done standing to tests done kneeling, then to those done sitting, first on a chair and then on the examining table, finally lying down supine and prone. Back-specific observations include noting areas of discoloration, looking for scars from previously unreported spine surgery, and assessing spinal alignment and contour. 
In the back examination, subtle changes such as slight curvature are rarely important. When dealing with mechanical back pain, tenderness of the paraspinal musculature should also be taken with a grain of salt, because muscle tenderness is common and not necessarily found at the site underlying the painful structure. Direct spinal palpation, however, is very valuable in identifying less common traumatic or non-mechanical conditions, such as vertebral compression fracture or spinal infection. Direct palpation of the SI joints can identify a sacroiliac component to the patient's symptoms. In testing range of motion, the patient bends forward and backward while the examiner asks whether the movements reproduce the patient's typical pain. Other back movements, in addition to flexion extension, should be tested as well. Range of motion measurement in a one-time assessment should obviously be taken into clinical context, but in most patients, this is of little clinical importance. Axial loading is also frequently tested, but its findings can be very nonspecific. While the patient is standing, further tests include assessing normal gait, as well as having patients take steps on their heels and on their toes, the Trendelenburg test, and repeated toe raises to assess for active motor strength in the lower extremity myotomes. To best test ankle reflexes, have the patient kneel onto the seat of a chair facing backwards. Have them squeeze the chair at the moment the hammer strikes the Achilles tendon. Having the patient seated in a chair with their feet on the floor is the optimum position for testing motor strength of ankle dorsiflexion, big toe extension, and flexion. Sitting on the edge of the examining table with legs hanging free is the best time to test knee reflexes. You can accentuate the reflex by having the patient lock fingers together and then try to pull their hands apart as you strike their patellar tendon with the reflex hammer. This is also a good place to test the quadriceps for motor strength. Here you can also test for upper motor neuron signs such as Clonus and Babinski reflex. Any upper motor neuron finding demands a more detailed neurologic workup as it negates the diagnosis of mechanical low back pain. The straight leg raise is a staple of the low back examination and is positive only in patients with leg dominant pain patterns. A positive test reproduces the leg dominant pain described by the patient. While back pain and hamstring tightness may occur, that does not qualify as a positive response. The crossover sign is pain felt in the normally asymptomatic leg when the examiner performs the straight leg raise on the painful side. This sign indicates bilateral radicular pain from a single leg lift with pain radiating across the midline. A positive crossover sign suggests central disc protrusion and is a warning for possible Cotta-Aquina syndrome. A patient with positive crossover needs further assessment. While the patient is supine on the examining table, practitioners can easily test sensation in the lower limbs and perform additional examination of the hips, abdomen, and peripheral pulses as indicated. The physical exam concludes with the patient prone on the examining table. The femoral stretch test is essentially the straight leg raise upside down. With the knee extended, the examiner lifts the leg into extension at the hip. A positive test is exacerbation or reproduction of the patient's typical anterior thigh pain. Back pain is common with this maneuver, but does not represent a positive test. The femoral stretch is indicated when the history of the pain location suggests the test may be useful and does not always need to be routinely done. Assessing the gluteus maximus by having the patient repeatedly tighten and relax the buttocks while palpating for unilateral loss of tone is a very sensitive test of S1 function. The final test in the low back exam is checking for saddle sensation. The test be can be easily performed by checking sensation in the midline between the upper buttocks, the highest point of sacral sensory innervation. Decreased saddle sensation is another warning of possible cauda equina syndrome and demands a thorough reassessment of the patient's history of bowel and bladder difficulties and, if suspicion warrants, a rectal examination to check sphincter tone.
Combining information from the history with findings of the physical examination, the clinician has the ability to rule out a number of potentially grim diagnoses. For example, intermittent back-dominant pain essentially eliminates malignancy and active infection as causes of the pain. Normal upper motor neuron tests rule out a cord lesion as the source of the symptoms. Unchanged bowel and bladder function, normal saddle sensation, and no crossover on straight leg rays remove the possibility of cauda equina syndrome. In mechanical low back pain, this information also helps you categorize the pattern of the patient's symptoms as back or leg dominant with a directional preference for either flexion or extension in order to better direct non-invasive management. So, when do we get imaging on patients with back pain? It may be tempting to get imaging, especially when we aren't sure, and it seems like the next best test to work a patient up, but it's often not indicated or beneficial. The American College of Physicians gives us good guidance on this through their Choosing Wisely campaign. Their main recommendation is to not get imaging in patients with nonspecific low back pain. Imaging in this population has not been shown to help patients feel better faster, it adds radiation risk, it adds unnecessary cost to the health system and our patients, and it can lead to invasive procedures including surgery without evidence of improved outcomes. A systematic review in the Lancet of six randomized control trials found no difference in pain or function between immediate imaging and usual care for patients with back pain without red flag symptoms. This was both in the short-term, up to three months, and long-term follow-up at six to 12 months. There are certain cases where imaging should be obtained. Let's discuss those. If a patient has new back pain with a history of cancer, or you have a strong clinical suspicion of cancer, check an ESR and obtain plain radiographs. If you suspect spinal infection, such as in a patient with new back pain and a fever with a history of IV drug use or a recent infection, get an MRI. An MRI should also be the first test in patients with signs of cauda equina syndrome or severe neurologic deficits. Deferred imaging in patients after a trial therapy should be obtained in patients with signs of ankylosing spondylitis, risk factors for vertebral compression fracture, or those with weaker risk factors for cancer, like older age or unexplained weight loss. MRI after a trial therapy should also be obtained in patients with signs and symptoms of radiculopathy, who are candidates for surgery or spinal steroid injections, or in patients with symptoms of spinal stenosis who are candidates for surgery. Patients who should not get imaging include those whose pain is alleviated after one-month trial of therapy and those with previous spinal imaging without a change in their clinical status. Lastly, electromyography studies can be used when there's diagnostic uncertainty about the relationship between anatomical imaging findings and the leg symptoms in your patient. But there's insufficient evidence to guide exactly when to obtain EMG studies. If you would like to obtain these in suspected myelopathy, radiculopathy, neuropathy, and myopathy, just be sure to wait at least four weeks, since these can be inaccurate in the acute setting. Bottom line takeaways, get imaging in patients with red flag symptoms, including those who you suspect cancer, infection, or cauda equina as the cause. Order deferred imaging in patients after a failed trial of therapy and those with less concerning signs of cancer or in radiculopathy or spinal stenosis who are good candidates for surgery. And for all other patients with nonspecific low back pain, avoid imaging. My name is Andrew Yannick. 
a current PGY-1 at the University of Utah Internal Medicine Program, here to talk about non-pharmacologic approaches to low back pain. As with any disease, it is important to maximize non-invasive and non-pharmacologic approaches initially. The approach to back pain is no exception. First, it is important to appreciate that most cases of acute, nonspecific low back pain improve over time without treatment. The spontaneous recovery rate is more than 50 to 75% at four weeks and over 90% at six weeks. With this in mind, the most recent American College of Physicians guidelines recommend selecting non-pharmacologic treatment as initial therapy. Clinicians and patients should use a shared decision-making approach to select the most appropriate treatment based on patient preferences, potential harms, and costs of in the interventions. Non-pharmacologic approaches can be thought of as existing in four main buckets. Exercise and activity, integrative and complementary approaches, physical interventions, and finally, psychosocial interventions. Starting with exercise and activity, evidence suggests advising patients with non-specific low back pain to remain as active as is tolerated. Back-specific exercises are not needed in the acute setting, and returning to work as quickly as possible is recommended. A 2010 systematic review suggests that patients with acute low back pain without sciatica who underwent bed rest and avoided activity had increased pain and worse functional recovery. A separate systematic review in chronic low back pain found greater pain relief in those that exercise compared to those that didn't. Finally, another review of patients with chronic low back pain found yoga to be beneficial for short and long-term pain compared with no exercise. As for choosing the best exercise regimen, there is no clear difference in pain or functional outcome between various exercise regimens in over 20 head-to-head -head randomized controlled trials. When considering complementary and integrative therapies, interventions that probably have some benefit for acute or subacute back pain include spinal manipulation, massage, and acupuncture. A systematic review of 26 randomized controlled trials found lumbar spinal manipulation to be superior to other therapies or sham therapies for acute low back pain. A separate review of 25 randomized controlled trials found massage to be effective in subacute and chronic back pain, but only limited evidence supporting its use in acute pain. Acupuncture has been associated with decreased pain levels immediately after treatment, but have been found to be similar to sham needling in a review of 33 randomized controlled trials. There is insufficient evidence to suggest benefit in using glucosamine. As for chronic low back pain, the American College of Physicians guidelines suggest acupuncture and spinal manipulation as having the most benefit. Although low quality evidence, for both modalities, there is evidence of improvement in pain and function for up to 12 weeks with acupuncture and one year for spinal manipulation. Herbal therapies have limited evidence to suggest benefit and remain difficult to study given a lack of regulation. When considering physical interventions, Superficial heat, traction, transcutaneous electrical nerve stimulation, low-level laser therapy, and lumbar supports are just a few that are used to treat low back pain. A systematic review in 2016 of various physical modalities found a lack of benefit in all except superficial heat for acute pain and low-level laser therapy for chronic pain. I will point out, there has been no evidence to suggest benefit from lumbar supports. Lastly, when considering psychosocial therapies, for chronic low back pain, it has been found that quite often improvement in functional outcomes depends more on addressing psychosocial factors and movement and activity interventions than focused pharmacotherapy. The presence of things such as maladaptive pain coping behaviors, psychiatric comorbid conditions such as depression and anxiety, high functional impairment, and low general health status were the strongest predictors of worse low back pain at one year. Two systematic reviews are particularly important to point out. One found that cognitive behavioral therapy for subacute and chronic low back pain reduced pain, 
with an effect larger than comparable guideline-based active treatments. Another review found that mindfulness-based stress reduction for chronic low back pain was associated with improved pain and function compared to usual care. In closing, non-pharmacologic therapy for low back pain is well supported. Most acute back pain resolves on its own, and staying active in the initial period after pain begins is highly encouraged for both acute and chronic pain. Otherwise, modalities with the most benefit in acute back pain include spinal manipulation, massage, acupuncture, and superficial heat, whereas in chronic back pain include acupuncture, spinal manipulation, low-level laser therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, and mindfulness-based stress reduction. Now we'll transition to medical treatment options. The first-line treatment for back pain is NSAIDs. Ibuprofen and naproxen are both great cost-effective options. Contraindications that you need to look out for include history of GI bleeds or ulceration, as well as any history of chronic kidney disease or acute kidney injury. Interestingly, Tylenol has fallen out of favor as a first-line medication for back pain. A 2015 meta-analysis found little or no benefit of Tylenol versus placebo, but if your patient reports improvement in their pain, then this is a relatively safe, affordable treatment with a low risk profile. For second-line treatment of back pain, we turn to medications that focus at the muscle or the nerve. So muscle relaxants such as cyclobenzaprine or tizanidine can reduce muscle spasms that may be contributing to symptoms. However, you have to consider the potential sedating effects and risk of delirium in your older patients. Muscle relaxants have been shown to be more effective than placebo in reducing pain and alleviating symptoms. You should wait to give this medication until after a trial of the first-line therapy. Another second-line treatment would be antidepressants, specifically those that work on neuropathic pain, such as duloxetine. Side effects to look out for would be drowsiness, dry mouth, dizziness, any anticholinergic side effects. Of note, this is better for chronic back pain and should not be used in acute low back pain. Unlike the medications discussed earlier, this medication is only efficacious if patients take it daily. Finally, you could use opioids if the patient has failed other medical therapies, the potential risks being developing opioid use disorder, as well as side effects such as constipation, nausea, or sedation. There is no evidence that, there, that opioid medications are more efficacious than our NSAID therapy. Finally, tramadol is a partial opioid agonist as well as an SNRI, so there is some evidence that this medication is more effective than placebo in short-term reduction of pain. However, you need to make sure that the patient is not on any other antidepressants before starting this medication. Gabapentin and pregabalin do not seem to be effective for low back pain and have a relatively risky side effect profile, so should not be prescribed for the primary complaint of low back pain. Systemic steroids are also another drug that have not been shown to be effective in chronic back pain. In regard to surgery, most back pain should resolve with conservative measures. However, those that need emergent surgical evaluation include those with suspected cord or cauda equina compression, as well as spinal infection. Patients requiring less urgent surgical evaluation include suspected spinal stenosis, neurologic deficits, or intractable pain resistant to conservative treatment. The standard surgery for spinal stenosis is a posterior decompressive laminectomy. A 2020 randomized control trial published in Spine found that those that received surgery had improved pain and function than the conservative therapy, which was maintained throughout the four years of follow-up. The standard surgery for a herniated disc is discectomy. On systematic review of seven randomized control trials reported in the Journal of General Internal Medicine in 2020, surgery for lumbar radiculopathy with associated herniated disc was associated with reduced pain compared to non-surgical management at six months of follow-up. 
However, those effects did not persist beyond a year. So extensive counseling needs to be had with the patient prior to surgery. Finally, alternative procedures, including interventional radiofrequency denervation and epidural steroid injections, have shown benefit for short-term pain control in patients with chronic back pain. Hi, I'm Karen Stenyum, an assistant professor of internal medicine at the University of Utah and a primary care physician. I'm here to give some clinical pearls related to treating low back pain. So when someone comes in with acute back pain, the very first thing I try to do is validate their pain and attempt to empathize with their situation. Not only is back pain significantly painful, but it's also a huge source of frustration. It disrupts people's lives. It's a major source of absenteeism, job change, poor quality of life ratings. So it's really important to validate that when the patient comes in. Now, the most helpful tool I've found in managing patients' back pain is actually managing their expectations. I quickly try and get patients to realize that their back pain will not last forever. I like to quote that 90% of people with acute nonspecific back pain will be better in six weeks. Once I can get patients to truly comprehend this, then we can focus on how we're going to get them through this very time-limited period. Now, as you've learned... There isn't a lot of good data out there that much works for acute back pain. What we know, though, is that different people respond differently to therapies. So I really try to approach back pain from a multiple treatment modalities and remain flexible in my approach. As far as non-pharmacologic therapy, the main thing I really recommend to patients is just to keep moving. I try to figure out what patient's baseline level of functioning is, what their career is, what they do for exercise, and then develop some kind of movement plan they can do on their own in their homes. While physical therapy plays a really large role in the management of back pain, it's not really in the acute setting. Given that most people are better by six weeks, most people don't make it to their first physical therapy appointment before they're already better. So instead, I have them do things out on their own. Yoga, gentle range of motion, stretching, uh, walking around. I do discourage bed rest, back braces, and prolonged absences from work. We have good data that those things are actually harmful, and so I tell patients to avoid them. Now, moving to pharmacotherapy, NSAIDs are without question the backbone of our therapy. I recommend them to every patient who doesn't have a contraindication. The problem is so many patients do have contraindications, so we're often forced to use our second-line therapies. As you already heard, acetaminophen has not been shown to be more effective than placebo, but sometimes we'll use it if NSAIDs are contraindicated. If there are no other options, I will rarely prescribe an opioid or muscle relaxer, but typically I ask that the patients use these only at night to help them sleep and only for a time-limited course of three to five days. Typically, these things alone will get people through their acute back pain flare. It's rare that I have to move to interventional approaches like spinal injections or surgeries for acute back pain. That's more reserved for people who have moved into that more chronic back pain situation. Obviously, there's exceptions to this rule. We've talked about the red flag criteria where we're worried about infection, fracture, or malignancy. But again, that is the exception, not the rule. Now, circling back to where we started with expectation management, the final thing that I do is let patients know that they will have back pain again. The vast majority of folks who experience one episode of acute nonspecific back pain will have a recurrence. Our goal is not to get someone back pain-free for the rest of their life. Instead, it's to have as long as possible of symptom-free periods between episodes. This is where I really emphasize the importance of physical therapy core strengthening exercises, and weight management for the prevention of back pain. Often, 
This counseling isn't done at the initial visit, but more at their health maintenance exams. Finally, let's return to our case. Remember our 75-year-old gentleman with three ED visits for back pain radiating down his left thigh, associated with some new onset weakness of hip flexion. The first question that should come to your mind is, does this constitute a surgical emergency? Remember, surgical emergencies are cauda equina syndrome, acute myelopathy, or rapidly progressive neurologic disease. I'm gonna argue that this patient's hip flexor weakness does not constitute rapidly progressive neurologic disease. Therefore, I don't think we have a surgical emergency. What we do have is potentially intervenable surgical disease. He has classic symptoms of an L2 to L4 radiculopathy and imaging that matches. Now, as we've discussed, there isn't convincing data that decompressive surgeries for radiculopathy are superior in the long term. Therefore, if you can manage someone's pain without surgery, we certainly should, especially in an elderly patient who might not be a great surgical candidate. So now that we've decided that our patient doesn't need urgent surgery, we need to control his pain. I'm intrigued that he wasn't given any NSAIDs as first-line therapy. In this case, I would definitely schedule NSAIDs for him. As we discussed, he is an elderly patient, so I'd proceed with caution and not jump to the highest dose, but I would certainly schedule NSAIDs for a period of time, at least three days up to a week. I would also try adjunct therapies like heat therapy or topicals. I would probably prescribe him topical diclofenac, lidocaine, maybe even some capsaicin cream. Let him try them out at home and see what he likes. I'd also probably encourage him to discontinue the opioids and muscle relaxers he was given in the ER, and at minimum, I wouldn't prolong his course. Now, if his pain isn't controlled with this therapy after a week or two, I might consider sending him for an epidural spinal injection to see if he could have some pain relief while we're waiting for recovery to occur. And probably most important in all of this is remembering to manage our patient's expectations and letting him know that his pain almost certainly will improve even if we were to do nothing.